Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poetry and the creative life. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Kevin Koval. Kevin Koval, and uh, I'm a poet and uh, a teacher and a community builder and you know, the artistic director of Young Chicago Authors and, and one of the founders of Lotta Than a Bomb. Kevin Koval is the author and editor of 10 books, including The Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip-Hop, and Shtick and co-author of the play, This is Modern Art. His work has appeared in Poetry Magazine, The Daily Show, Chicago Tribune, CNN, Bakeshore Drive, Huffington Post, and four seasons of HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. Koval's collection, A People's History of Chicago, dropped in April 2017 on Haymarket Books. He read his poem, The Day Harold Died for Us, from A People's History of Chicago, and talked about the radical legacy of Chicago's first black mayor, Harold Washington, and the creative invitation that hip-hop extends. I think hip-hop gives you an invitation to create, you know, and I think it does that regardless of the genre. Uh, you know, I, I was a, like a little wannabe b-boy as a kid, um, you know, like based off of like the Style Wars and Beat Street and Breakin' and Wild Style films. Like, I also wanted to, you know, I had my parachute pants and I dragged, like, a cardboard, you know, box we cut flat, you know, in front of a restaurant in a strip mall that my dad was working in, and I put out a cup and, you know, I started to do, like, my six steps and backspin and the, you know, security guard, rent-a-cop, whatever. It was like, my man, you have to move on, you know? Um, so my B-boy career was cut short. But uh, I think, like... You know, you had the sense that, you know, these were young people creating this culture and it is, you know, rooted in so much of, you know, the black diasporic experience. And one of those key, uh, you know, aesthetic elements or, you know, one of the one of the things that are is infused in the ethos is that notion of call and response. And I think that when you heard or when I heard like, LL, you know, you wanted to then like also write something like LL or, um, and so I started to write rhymes. I got really lucky because I was listening to hip hop, um, unencumbered by anyone else's opinion because I was just alone in my house uh, with the boombox listening to Big Daddy Kane and KRS One and Rakim and Chuck D. And MC Light and and all of those all of those poets in that like you know eighty eight to like ninety ninety one era, and they sent me to the library uh, just in search of what they were talking about, you know. And so I already had this you know you know really thorough oral poetic in my head, and I at that point I'd probably memorized most of the tapes that I'd had in in like a milk crate in my house, and so I knew volumes of text on memory, and then. You know, the first book I got at the library, once I really was in search of, of what they were telling me, you know, was Malcolm's autobiography. And I read that when I was a sophomore in high school. And then in the same section uh, at the same library was Lerone Bennett Jr.'s Before the Mayflower, A History of Black America. And then next to that book was Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And then they also had the Black Poets edited by Dudley Randall, you know, and that book really opened me up because... You know, that's where I read, 
I mean, that's why I read Miss Brooks, really, for the first time. But that's also why I read, like, the Black Arts Poets for the first time. Like, in the in the stacks of the, the library, you know, sitting cross-legged with the book in my lap. And, and I thought, I, I was crying because, you know, it was the first book, like, the first anthology that you could, I could like, check out of the library that had language of working people, language that felt very much like the language I was listening to in the boombox. And, like, here it was printed on the page. To me, poems are stories, and it's the way I tell stories. I'm not a real historian. You know, I'm a student of history, um, but I'm a poet, and, and I love history. And I think, uh, you know, digging the record is something that hip-hop taught me, and, and being, you know, having a desire to bring stories that have existed in the past and making them relevant to the moment and to, to our, our current uh, you know, setting to learn from them and build a different kind of future is also something that I take from you know, my own Jewishness and diasporic practices. You know, I, I was told the same stories again and again as a kid and uh, also the, the rabbis and, and even my family would debate you know, the meaning of Exodus or whatever it was. And so that process combined with, you know, taking samples from soul and jazz and funk records and making them, you know, relevant in the moment of hip-hop cultural practice, like those notions of sampling and, 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 and you know, and, and bringing the past present into the future is something that I think I've been fascinated with as a practice and even kind of making time, like, really irrelevant. Um, and then as a poet to kind of go back and try to imagine, you know, what it might be have been to you know be in the moment where you know all these workers reverse the flow of the Chicago River you know even that challenge um you know I, I mean I took great poetic license but I also did the research um but I, I really allowed you know my just own human imagination to try to fill in some of the spaces that my you know research w was was leaving you know gaps in I think in some ways I wanted to write a book, this book, uh, in poems and in short, you know, prose pieces in part because I know that I wanted it to be um, a popular book, but I wanted it to be a tool. I wanted it to live in uh, classroom and educational spaces. And so I know our general attention span is pretty small. And the poem in some ways is perfect for a short attention span and for a culture that is you know, perpetually have, you know, ADHD or something. And I wanted, you know, the hope was that, you know, one, it would kind of get people's attention and maybe like send them into Google or, you know, God forbid the library. And, um, it would have them, you know, kind of researching and looking up some of what I'm talking about in the book. And more importantly, I think I was hoping that it would then get people to think about their own history in the city and, there are the, and, the, and the giant gaps that I'm also leaving out. Harold uh, Washington was ushering in a new idea that the city could be, one, uh, principally centrally black, uh, and that the organizing forces that elected Harold would then be also interracial and and traverse normal lines of Chicago's hypersegregation. I think um, in some ways Harold Washington was utilizing an organizing strategy that I think, you know, really I would, I would give probably Chairman Fred Hampton 
uh, you know, the credit for creating in some ways. You know, Harold was elected by a group of progressive black, Latino, and, and white folks. Uh, Chairman Fred had, you know, developed this notion of the Rainbow Coalition, which was later really co-opted by Jesse Jackson. But it was that that idea that you know the, the Black Panthers could come together with the Young Lords and they could come together with a progressive group of. Uh, Appalachian poor white folks who had moved to Uptown and they were organizing themselves as a crew called the Young Patriots and it was that kind of like interracial solidarity that uh, not only made the Panthers and, and, and particularly Chairman Fred such a uh, scary force to the FBI and to the CIA and to CPD and to the, you know, the old mayor too but I think it's also the organizing strategy that um, you know, with Rudy Lozano and with uh, you know a lot of folks at the table, Chuy Garcia, many many people at the table, they they brought the city together in a way that I don't think the city had seen in that in that big of a way, you know, since the the, the promise and then the assassination of Chairman Fred. And so I think in that regard, Harold was a uh, a real hope and also like a real unifying force for progressive people of color and also for working people of color and for progressive white folks and i think that that he 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 you know created a space where people could be in communion with one another and then i think even as a legislator we don't know what he would have done i mean he was you know it was only a few years into office uh you know that he was that he died and and i even remember even now i mean people say that he maybe Maybe it wasn't just health reasons, you know, maybe people, you know, people say that maybe he was assassinated. And um, I think because he was in the process of breaking up not only the old, you know, machine that that the old Mayor Daley had had uh, created and cemented in the city. But he was also, you know, the, at, at the time, um, what they were calling them the... Uh, I forget what kind of wars they were calling them, but the, you know, the wars that the, the council wars that existed between these entrenched, uh, and, and really, you know, racist and problematic, like, you know, white aldermen who had been there forever, you know, who were really in the process of redlining and gerrymandering and making sure that these ethnic blocks remained the, the same. And, and that, and that a lot of the, the city's finances and resources would be funneled into those, you know, into those same communities. And part of the reason why there's such like a gross grand inequity between neighborhoods in the city of Chicago has everything to do with what I think Harold Washington was trying to dismantle. And I think that that really inspired people, but also, you know, the powerful center, including the ties to the police force and many other things. I think that, you know, made him a, uh, uh, you know, in some ways like, you know, public enemy number one for some of those folks in power. I love Frank O'Hara, and uh, I think, you know, that essay on personism has really made a big impact. I teach that a lot, and I think it, I think that, you know, that essay talks a lot about what I think, in part, hip-hop poetic practices, too, about, you know, the specificity of naming the time of a train or naming the exact intersection that you're at or what you got at the corner store. Like, all of that seems to be the kind of poetics that I, I feel like I am most interested in, you know, like the particulars of place, the, you know, the, the, the specifics of, of one's, you know, uh, syntax and diction, and then and then, of course, you know, I and, and, and also that is in the tradition of, of, of Miss Brooks and Miss Gwendolyn Brooks that I also, being a Chicagoan and, and my teacher being Hakim Adabudi, 
and his teacher being Miss Brooks, I also see myself in that rich tradition of both, you know, the poetics of place or the the, the stories that are in front of your nose. Or uh, Miss Brooks talked about finding her material in the street, uh, and then you know she was so fascinated with you know the micro syllable and you know ringing each portion of sound out of every word, uh, and so that also feels very hip-hop like to me you know like the play of each bending of, of, of a phrase and each word and how how those words I mean, I'm just I'm fascinated with how those words sound together I love the way I love the music that language makes you know and so I think that you know my traditions are, are those how lovely to feel like you are part of a tradition you know um, and so those are the places I think I come from So yeah, uh, this is the day Harold died, November 27th, 1987. We went to the rock and roll McDonald's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Mom's took a half a day. She was fly and a fashion rep, high on a mound of white. I was 12 and lived with Harold for four years. He was somewhere between Malcolm X and Martin King and a black grandfather whose feet I wanted to sit at. He was Barack before Barack. A Chicago hope, a Chicago king who brought Latins and blacks together like Frankie Knuckles, the first black mayor in the city of DuSable. The rock and roll McDonald's was filled with sequins capes, Chinese 50 bar stools, Elvis Beatles posters, and half a hall of fame of whitewashed memorabilia. Not a buddy guy pick in sight, not a howling wolf guitar lick on the jukebox. In the city of muddy waters, the golden arches were a white haven where jump blues turned vanilla shake. I knew I didn't like white music and was beginning to know the extent white people lied on history. And in the parking lot that day, I knew lunch out with moms and my brother was a luxury. I knew this was how rich people must live, ordering off menus. I knew at any time things could be taken away. Electricity, fathers, mothers in handcuffs, we ate in the car. Mom's juggling a fleeting to-do list in her brain. My brother, a boy monk in the front seat, trying to visualize some future stability. His heart still a soft fruit sweet. He carried toys in his pocket, wanted a transformer for Hanukkah, hoped that what we were was not the limit of what we could become. The car was on, because the hawk was swooping between buildings on Ontario and Ohio like a flood, and the radio was audible and murmuring, tuned to WBBM or WGN or maybe even GCI if moms let us have a say that day for once in our lives. We were mid-bite in the damp and growing cold of November, and the radio whispered, Harold was dead. It was the afternoon, and I didn't think someone could leave with the sun still out. A giant shining overhead like some Moses, some Tubman promising a possible land. The radio said he sipped his coffee, slumped at his table, his heart attacked, and he was gone. I thought we'd have to move next. Like when the landlord says go, the mayor was gone, and soon, to the people. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes. Join us next time for an interview with Beza Ozer. <laughs>